Last week, we began our discussion of Christian identity. And if you think back to what we talked about last week, um, one of the, the major aspects that we talked about was what does it mean to be a Christian? And primarily, what, does, what do people your own age or people in society think when they hear that term Christian? And generally, these can be broken up by, by age groups. And, um, and it's probably the same age groups that have shifted over time. I mean, it's probably the same at every, every point in human history. Um, but those age groups, as, as we see them today, are like the baby boomer generation and a little bit older. Generally, as we talked about last week, generally has this idea of a cultural expectation of being Christian. That there are a certain set of activities that you do and activities that you refrain from. And that defines your Christianity. And a lot of times those people might even be driven along by, by the guilt of trying to measure up to that expectation. Or maybe driven along by the shame of feeling like they don't measure up to that expectation. There's that expectation um, as a societal thing, an expectation to conform to what society says a Christian is. The next segment that we talked about last week was primarily um, like Generation X and younger. That generally speaking, um, people in that age group and younger have more of an idea of personal, personal freedom or personal autonomy. That if I, want to, if I want to live my life, then I need to have the freedom to ex express myself however I see fit. That I need the freedom to, to make my choices and I have to be able to be free to, to do what I think will bring me fulfillment. And so last week, those are the two main things that we talked about and I you know, spent a good 22 and a half minutes on that. <laughs> so there's like the three minute review. But there's a third one. And the third one is, um, is seen most often in people in their 20s and, and younger, although this one probably cuts across more segments of society than we would, than we would guess. And this is the idea of people looking for, for justice, that your identity isn't found in living up to expectation, that your identity isn't necessarily found in in how you express yourself and the freedom that you have, but your identity is what do you cheer for? What do you support? What do you oppose? That your identity is, is and, and this is a very easily politicized, so if you watch the news at all, you'll see all sorts of people talking about the causes that they support. You'll see big corporations advertising about the causes that they support and that they're cheering for. And, um, and this is something that, especially our younger people, like in the late 20s and younger, but it cuts across all age groups, really. But especially our younger people get pulled in to my identity is in what I support. That I've got the yard sign out front that tells you the five or six things that I support, which conversely tells you the five or six things that I oppose. And... Um, and even the news, which is sometimes more propaganda than news, kind of feeds the flames. That identity is not so much what you support and what you oppose, but then you can divide into different groups based on what you support and what you oppose. 
And that basic understanding, it's like, why would we talk about this in a sermon, Pastor Hagen, when we talk, want to talk about Christian identity, what it means to be a Christian? Well, we have to have a basic understanding of, of these three ideas, of living up to, to social expectation, conformity. And maybe this describes yourself, or maybe your parents, or even your grandparents, sometimes driven along by guilt, that this is what we do because this is what we do, this is what is expected of us. And consequently, this is how you should act because this is what was expected of me. And then that middle group, that middle group that pushed back against the guilt of their parents' generation, that middle group that says, I want to make my own way, and I want to um, express myself however I want to express myself. And, and I mean, maybe it's characteristic of, of people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s always, <laughs> pushing back against whatever their parents had thought and believed. But it still fits today. And then that final group, which is, is a little bit newer, perhaps, that final group that says, let's actually talk about some of the problems in the world around us. And of the three, the one that's kind of driven along by societal pressure, the one that's driven along by personal, personal um, autonomy, I guess is the word, personal freedom, and then this final group, the causes that I support, that final mindset is the only one that actually deals with or wants to deal with the problems of life in a sinful world. That final group that says, there are causes that I support, there are people who have been neglected, um, are the ones that I want to, that I want to help. And the, the political discussion, if this were a political discussion, would be on how do we help these people who are disadvantaged. But culturally, culturally the question is, how do we identify ourselves by what we support? That third group wants to identify themselves primarily by the social wrongs that they make right. And so we see those three, and really they're all the same thing. They're all variations on the same theme. And um, I even had somebody after the first service give me a little bit of a, a note to use the, uh, the Q&A portion to, to pull out the different philosophers over the last 200, 300 years who have, who have proposed these same ideas. There's nothing new. But all these ideas, trying to deal, you know, live up to societal expectation, trying to find personal freedom and autonomy, trying to correct society's wrongs by taking up the cause, all these ideas are still dealing with the same basic problem of guilt. Because no matter how far you run, no matter how much you live up to expectation, no matter how much you find yourself in your, personal, uh, in your personal heart, no matter how many causes and wrongs you make right, it's still trying to live up to and deal with this idea of guilt. That the conscience is still there. And the first group, the first group says, I deal with guilt by ordering my life in such a way that is nice and orderly and lives up to all the expectations and then even the guy who lives next to me would be able to say, you know what, they're doing it right. And I can take some comfort in the fact that I'm doing it properly. And that at the very least my conscience shouldn't be telling me that I feel guilty because I've done everything that was expected of me. The 
problem of guilt right here in the middle, talking about uh, personal freedom, personal autonomy, it tries to get guilt out of the mind entirely and say the real issue is all these externals that are imposed on you. So what you have to do is go inside yourself and, and find your own personal truth and find your own personal freedom. And once you express yourself as you really are, you find your true person, then, then you'll feel free. And then you won't have to deal with guilt. And that third group, the group that's um, trying in some secular, unbelieving way, perhaps, but still trying to deal with um, some problems in our sinful society, that third group you know, isn't driven along by guilt, isn't driven along by trying to escape from guilt, just driven along by the problems out there. And if I'm so concerned about the problems out there, then I never have to worry about the problem in here. And so the perfect problem to try to fix out there, all of society's problems and ills out there, the perfect ones are the ones that cannot be solved this side of heaven, because then I can expend all of my energy and all of my time and all of my attention trying to fix the unfixable. And I'll never have to look at the truly unfixable in my own heart. And so it's all variations on the same theme, and the Christian identity is of a totally different sort. We live in a world with these three identities, and, and all of us have grown up with and dealt with and, and known people and had to manage these different expectations. And, and very often, um, these different three different sets of expectations might even be that point of conflict when you had to work with the, the new graduate at work. And it's like, we're both speaking English, but we're speaking a different language. That point of conflict when you're trying to talk with your own kids and, and you're like, this is what, the way I was raised and this is the way I thought I raised you and this is the way that, that you're reflecting it back to me now. That point of disconnect. And the Christian identity is of a very different sort. Where the Christian can recognize that maybe there are some cultural expectations. And, and that's the world that, that a lot of our parents or grandparents grew up in, a set of cultural expectations. And there was some good to that, but at, the, at its root, it was driven along by guilt and constrained by the law and led to this loveless and, and heartless distraction from the gospel. And in the middle, the, the group driven along by personal freedom, the Christian recognizes that when Jesus says that if the Son sets you free, he will be free indeed, that freedom isn't simply doing whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, with whomever I want. That true freedom, true freedom means being baptized and given a new life in our Lord. And that third group, talking about the different causes of society and the different flags that, that people take up and, and even the ones that, that our news media would portray as the red flags and the blue flags and take your pick and don't choose the other one because as a Christian, we can recognize the ills of society. And we can say, you know, why is it? Why is it that... In, in, our, in our structure, in our society, that we have people who go hungry and go without a home, and other people who have so much money that they don't know what to do besides try to go to Mars. 
Or why is it that, that it takes the unbelieving world walking in the streets to address, and, and how they address the problem is not the question, but the fact that they bring up the problem. Why is it that our nation is uncomfortable talking about the idea of, of race or ethnicity or personal origin? Or saying that this person's experience might be very different from mine, even though we grew up at the same time and in the same place. We walked in different shoes. And why is it, why might it be, that the secular unbelieving world, driven along by guilt, driven along by this idea to try to get away from their conscience, that they would be perhaps more open to that discussion than, than even Christians. Is it possible that we get caught up in the idea of these three identities? And you could summarize them all in basically the same way, that they're trying to, whether it's compensate for guilt, trying to silence the conscience, um, trying to find peace through performance, or peace through achievement. That's really what it is. And whether we see the reflections of ourselves in, in any of those three categories or not, I think that you and I can both admit that we, that we readily, or at least our sinful nature loves, the idea of peace through achievement and peace through performance that on the basis of what I do, that I'm the one who is not like the other guy. And I mean, just think about it. Um, you think about it as, as maybe, well, as a parent. If you've raised children or you've been a child yourself, you think about, think about the decisions that a parent has to make and, and maybe the hopes and dreams that we pin on our children. Think about um, the way that, that people talk about where they went to school. I was just uh, talking with somebody just the other day and he was a little bit older than me. And we were all standing around the grill and he started talking about classes he took in college. I'm like, buddy, college was like 20 years ago for you. But it was that idea of achievement, that idea of performance, that idea of I really like my job, whether it's a white collar job or a blue collar job, it's got the specific characteristics that, that people highlight and people look down on, but my job um, is something that I do very well and, and people know that I'm a good worker and therefore I can feel at home in my job because people recognize me. Or the other side, that, well, that job isn't doesn't have a college degree, or you have to do this kind of work, or it's a little dirty, or whatever the case may be. Just the way that, that as a community, that people talk about different occupations, rather than seeing them as vocations given by our Lord, to make use of our time to provide for our responsibilities in life. To see the difference, that even around the edges, and even within our own hearts, is it possible that we take more comfort in our performance or our achievement than in what our Lord has said? Well, I'm a pretty good guy because of, 
X, Y, and Z, and here's what I've done, and here's what I've accomplished, and I can now take it easy because I made the right decisions, and my 401k is going to survive at least until I'm 84 and a half, and then we'll see. My performance, my achievement, getting in right around the edges, and distorting that view of vocation. Vocation being like the different hats that we wear as as a parent or as a child, as a spouse, as an employer, employee, all these occupations that God wants us to fulfill to his glory. And we get swept right along with the performance, the autonomy, and the causes to say, here is why I know that, that I can have a good day, because I have finally measured up <laughs> the reality. The reality that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 1 is very different. That your identity isn't based on what you achieve, but on what you receive. That your identity is, is really a function of who it is that you're listening to, right? That it isn't based on what you achieve, that idea of performance, but on what you receive on what our Lord has given to you and promised about you. And that's where Paul starts in, first, in uh, Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, the very first verse. He has basically a summary statement for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then, over the next 10 or 11 verses, he tries to unpack what does it mean to have all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. What does it mean that God, um, sitting on his throne, and that image of, of Isaiah in the temple, like Isaiah chapter 6, and the, the seraphim are calling back and forth, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and Isaiah's like, woe to me, I'm ruined, and there is God speaking from his throne, saying, whom shall I send? Seated on that very throne, God made declarations about you. That... Even before there was a hint of performance or achievement in your life, even before God said, let there be light, God chose you to be his own. He did this, verse 4, when he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. And the fact of, uh, the picture of God saying this as he's seated on his throne is that it is absolutely true and certain in heaven itself, and therefore it is true and certain for your life. There's absolutely no doubt that God wanted to bring you to faith and to make you his own. That God wanted to even use the ups and downs, the pains and the joys of this life and use that as an element that would provide an opportunity for you to see his grace again and to keep you close to him. And he goes on. Verse 7. In him. We also have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in keeping with the riches of his grace. That identity isn't what isn't about achievement. <laughs> it's about receivement, if that's a word. And what is it that we have received? Redemption from that dead way of life that says you'll never measure up. Redemption from that dead way of life that says you need to find yourself. Redemption from the idea that says the problem's always out there and redemption by the blood of the Son of God who says that you have been bought from that dead way of life into a new way of life of freedom 
and purpose. And he keeps going. Uh, verse 11, in him we have also obtained an inheritance because we are predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in keeping with the purpose of his will. I mean, I know Paul uses exceptionally long sentences here in Ephesians chapter 1 because he just can't stop talking about the beautiful promise of God for believers that your salvation rests entirely on God's decision to bring you to faith at the same time as your salvation rests entirely on the death and resurrection of his son, at the same time as your salvation rests entirely on God bringing you to faith through holy baptism, at the same time as your salvation rests entirely on God's promise to keep you in this faith until he brings you to your future, that inheritance in heaven that will never perish, spoil, or fade. That's totally different category than performance driven by guilt. Autonomy and freedom driven by this idea of, of I'm in charge or causes that say the problem is out there. That of all people, um, maybe in that, that third group, you know, every blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. That third group, uh, the unbelievers, who take up causes, at the very least, they, they recognize and want to wrestle with some of the problems of life in a sinful world. And you might recognize that most of the political discussion, if, if that is going on, most of the political discussion is how. How do you deal with these problems? Not the fact that these problems exist. But best of all, as Christians, we should be able to be the ones who are most open about it recognize that <laughs> I've said and done and thought things that, that really put somebody else down. And that at the same time, we know the truth about the human race, that we're all descended from Adam and Eve, and that there's one race, the human race, no matter where you came from. And that best of all, our Lord shares our human race. And he died and rose for you and for me. That when we talk about the ills of society, as society tries to find their way to tax their way out of poverty, if, that, if that's the solution, the Christian is the one who recognizes that you have every rich blessing in Christ, an eternity that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And God has promised you a place in a city where, you know what, the, the asphalt and the pavement outside is, isn't made from, from rock and coal tar. It's made from gold that here at the table you've got a richness and a blessing and a fellowship that nobody else and nothing else in the world can touch and can't even come close to that the Christian recognizes that Jesus is the one who says that if the son sets you free you will be free indeed and conversely the one who sins is a slave to sin that freedom isn't in finding what it is that I want to do and who it is that I actually am because the Bible tells me. <laughs> the Bible tells me who I am right inside it. I don't want that. But if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. That the Christian recognizes that perhaps there was some cultural good in, um, in Christianity being, being more, more common or more expected or at least a cultural understanding of guilt that isn't there in the same way as it was 30, 40, 50 years ago. Maybe there was some benefit to it, but you know, we don't choose the time that we live in. 
Best of all, our Lord has chosen us. And he's given us this, this free gift that says, you don't have to come here because you're driven along by guilt. You can come here because you're brought here by freedom. So what does that look like? We'll talk about some of the, the more in-depth or more personal applications, I suppose, of this concept over the next few weeks. But the best way that I could summarize it, that even as we live in a world where you probably know people who are still driven along by guilt and societal expectations, or you know people who are in their 30s, 40s, or 50s who are still trying to figure life out because they didn't have the, the understanding and the starting point that the Bible gives them, they're still trying to figure out what life is all about, or you know people who can talk about the problems of this world. As a Christian, we can speak to all of those. We can speak frankly about the problems of this world. We can speak openly about, um, about you know, what is the purpose of life and what does freedom actually look like. And we can speak with words of encouragement to somebody who's never really felt that sense of freedom in their entire lives. Because all three of those are about achievement. But our Christian faith isn't about achievement. It's about receiving. Amen.